Walker is a biotech and life sciences investor with significant transactional VC, IP, and operational experience. Prior to founding Neokuma, she served as general counsel at a PE-backed major retail group, going revenue to £365 million through M&A, international rollouts, and restructuring. Claire began her career at Slaughter and May, a leading British law firm. She received degrees from Oxford University and the NYU School of Law. Well, thank you so much, Clara, for joining us on the Pulse podcast today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. Awesome. So to kick us off, we like to ask our guests to share something interesting about your background. Can you please share anything that you think our guests might find interesting or different? Sure. I mean, I never intended to become a lawyer. I actually always wanted to be a journalist and specifically a music journalist. And my nickname at school was William Miller because I was always sloping off to shows to review them and interview people. And I suppose given your listening group, I should probably explain that for those under the age of 30, William Miller was a journalist and almost famous. And that was really my passion through school and early university before I decided to switch to law. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. What led you to pivot from the world of corporate law into the world of psychedelic healthcare investments? Sure. I mean, I suppose like all things in life, it's a combination of things that lead you to make a change. And for me, I'd always been very entrepreneurial. And what I didn't like about the business model of corporate law was that you're selling units of time, which are your most precious commodity. And when I moved across in-house, I found that I much preferred leading deals in-house where the business motives more aligned and you had equity stakes in the deals and therefore you got sort of much deeper into the deal and the industry. Whereas when you work in corporate law, you work with many different sectors, industries and businesses, but you're only scratching the surface. So I much preferred the deeper dive mentality. And then second, I had seen friends with depression who had received treatment, which in some ways was really helpful for them, but in other ways was inadequate because they carried with them undesirable side effects. And what became clear was that some people had really benefited from psychedelic medicines and had even traveled across the world to receive treatments to jurisdictions where they could have them. And so that led me to research how psychedelic medicine worked how it affected the mind. And I was really, really fascinated by that effect on the brain and the mind and got into a real rabbit hole of of research and looking into the area. And I suppose what really struck me at the time was that unlike other aspects of healthcare, which have gone through some really exciting scientific and clinical advancements, mental healthcare hadn't. And in fact, innovation had really stagnated. And this was all despite the fact that the world is very clearly facing a mental health care crisis. So it was only a matter of time before, given the excitement around psychedelic research again and the Renaissance and people writing about it and institutions investing in it, that research would translate into commercial opportunities to disrupt the healthcare system. So I I think a combination of those three things made me look at ways in which I could contribute to this new industry. And looking at my background in M&A, the most useful input I thought I could make would be 
in helping fundraise to contribute to some of the leading companies in this space that would really pave the way for a long-lasting industry here. Thank you for sharing all of that. I definitely want to touch on some of the themes you brought up in the overall description around mental health care and how important that is and how difficult it is really as a disease burden for people to accurately identify and destigmatize and then ultimately treat in a sustainable and consistent way. Now, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the call is because of this new trend and new focus in psychedelics, a lot of which you described earlier in terms of more efficacy being proven through science and research. Also on the popular adoption side, more people feeling comfortable and actually seeking out these treatments for conditions that may be more difficult to treat with other conventional forms of medicine. I'd love to start off with having you help our listeners understand a bit of the overview of the psychedelics industry in application to medicine. I know that this industry has historically been stigmatized and there's a narrative path there in the US at least uh, tied to sort of the drug culture of the 60s and beyond. I'll kick us off a little bit with a couple new bits of information, but would really like to turn it over to you to help our listeners see that overall path of where psychedelics came from and where we are today. So on the regulatory side, in the US, we know that there's been some inklings where different states are actually preparing to legalize a lot of psychedelic drugs. So Oregon recently loosened laws on magic mushrooms, as along with the District of Columbia, and California is preparing a bill that may do something very similar. On the UK side, I know that regulators have approved a drug trial of psychedelics for depression. And on the investment side, big names such as Peter Thiel have put money into psychedelic investments. We also know that psychedelic companies that have gone public, such as MindMed and Compass, have raised a lot of capital fairly recently. And lastly, a book that I really enjoyed, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, a New York Times bestseller book, has really helped more and more people get sensitized to the idea of using psychedelics as medical treatment. And with that brief context, I'd love to turn it over to you. Clara, can you please help our listeners understand a bit about the history and context of psychedelic healthcare? Sure. I mean, I should preface this by saying that psychedelic medicines have been used by people for thousands of years in Central and South America. And I think really the way we think of psychedelics today and the history and context around it is clearly from what happened from the 1950s onwards. So in the 1950s, you had a group of pioneering psychiatrists that were able to establish that hallucinogenic drugs had massive therapeutic potential. And one of the leading people in this space was Humphrey Osmond, who pioneered the use of LSD as a treatment for alcoholism, as well as other mental disorders. And he was the person who really coined the term psychedelic, which means mind manifesting. And his research produced promising initial results and established that the drugs could be a useful adjunct psychotherapy. And there were two views here on the medical side. The first was that hallucinogens are beneficial therapeutically because of their ability to make patients view their condition from a fresh perspective. And the second was that LSD can aid psychotherapy because it induces dreamlike hallucinations that reflected the patient's unconscious mind and enabled them to relive long-lost memories. So those were the two prevailing views. And 
LSD therapy became very popular. It peaked in the late 50s and 60s and was widely considered to be the next big thing in psychiatry and something that could supersede electroconvulsive therapy, psychosurgery, etc. And by the end of the 1960s, I think they treated about 2,000 patients with it. And what was consistent through those trials was that a single large dose of LSD could be a very effective treatment for alcoholism. And it's not surprising then that those results got quite a lot of interest from international mass media. And even in Canada, Osmond's form of LSD therapy was endorsed by the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you have this really promising treatment that definitely warranted further research into the therapeutic benefits of hallucinogenic drugs. But despite all of this promise, research came to an abrupt halt, mainly for political reasons and part of the the backlash against the hippie counterculture, which is what you mentioned, Yang. And that was really took place in 1962, where Congress passed new drug safety regulations and the FDA designated LSD an experimental drug and began to clamp down on this research. And unfortunately, the following year, LSD also hit the streets in the form of liquid that was soaked onto sugar cubes. So as you can imagine, it became incredibly popular very, very quickly and started to be seen as a drug of abuse. And with that also became very associated with um, student riots, anti-war demonstrations, and the federal government outlawed it in in the late 1960s. And then we had this hiatus where you couldn't research the drug, um, you couldn't be researched in institutions. But in the 90s, we then saw a renewed interest, mainly because of the neurobiological effects. Um, We now have so much more understanding about the way they work how many of those drugs work at a molecular level. And and then we had research groups who began performing brain scanning experiments to try to learn more about how those effects worked. And now we have a number of clinical trials being performed to test the benefits of psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA to treat patients with depression and other disorders. But, you know, we still have this situation where these drugs have been lumped together on schedules with all illegal drugs and not something that can be taken, used medically or recreationally. And because of that, you know, the use of the drugs is severely restricted. And it also prevents vital research taking place because it limits the practitioners who can actually lead these clinical trials and investigate and take this research further, which has obviously led to a lot of drug laws being criticised and a lot of the momentum that you mentioned that's taking place now to decriminalize drugs that have a massive therapeutic potential. And really interestingly, the FDA, which was part of the problem and part of the halting of this research, has now designated ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin as breakthrough status drugs, which really highlights that they have massive therapeutic potential for patients and should be fast-tracked through clinical trials as opposed to halted. From a biological perspective, are there negative effects of people taking these drugs? Or is the backlash and the negative reaction to using these drugs in the medical application mainly politically driven? There are some known risks that have to be taken into consideration and mitigated against. 
But that is the case with most medications. You know, you open up a box of paracetamol and there are, you know, requirements on how you take it, the risks involved, et cetera. So there's no drug that you can take for your health that wouldn't carry some risk or shouldn't be taken prudently. But with some psychedelics, there are known cardiotoxicity risks. And this is partly because of the way the drug functions and how it works with the serotonin receptors. And one of the things that can be done to mitigate those risks is rather than giving out the drug in its natural state, you can go through an optimization process where you can take the drug. And some of the companies that we've invested in are doing this. You take the drug and you identify the area that can create this this cardiotoxicity risk, which means that you know people who have known heart conditions should not be taking these drugs unless they've gone through a very thorough screening process or perhaps there are potential alternative therapies available to them. But what we do know is that it's um, the 5-HT2B receptor that can trigger some of these effects. And what can be done is you can take the drug as it is, look at the chemical space around it, create iterations of the drug that tone down that 5-HT2B activity, thereby making well, minimizing the cardiotoxicity risk and creating a much safer product profile and medicine for people to take. And that's really our interest here at Neokuma. There are lots of companies out there who are looking at ways of modifying dosing or the length of time that a patient might be held in the psychedelic space or finding different mechanisms and ways of getting the drugs into patients. Our sweet spot and what we focus on really are the companies that are taking the generic drugs out there and going through a proper lead optimization process where they create a much optimized profile for that drug. So it's a much safer drug for patients to take and something that's more likely to pass through the various phases of clinical trial and more likely to be approved by the regulator and thereby rolled out to patients at scale through national health services or reimbursed. That makes a lot of sense. I fully appreciate all drugs have side effects. And to your point, the mitigation and the application of the drug in specific use cases where certain individuals with certain extenuating conditions are more at risk. I think that's sort of par for the course for developing any sort of medicinals. One thing you touched upon is around the historical stigma around not just mental health, which is the primary application that psychedelics are being used to treat, but also psychedelics in general because of that popularized hippie culture, drug culture legacy. What's your approach when thinking about how to deal with that stigma and how does this sort of manifest both from the bottom up in terms of getting more individuals on the consumer side to adopt these medications and also top down from educating regulators and others who make decisions around whether or not to authorize these drugs in the first place? So the way I like to think of it is most drugs that are widely taken today have some origin in plant medicine and have gone through a clinical process of development to create the drug that's taken at the end of the day. And when you look at some of the profiles of psychedelic drugs, 
they actually have far fewer side effects than the other standardized drugs available on the market. So if you're looking at depression, for example, and you look at some of the nasty side effects associated with SSRIs, the reason people turn to psychedelics as an alternative is because, for example, you don't have the insomnia, problems with libido, nausea, etc. You might face taking an SSRI. So when it comes to education, I think from top down, bottom up, irrespective, it's really about looking at this as a new type of medicine, which has gone through the same sort of clinical design process that a lot of drugs on the market have gone through. And so in fact, whilst a lot of them are inspired by psychedelics, what you're taking at the end of the day isn't like the psychedelics that our parents' generation would have taken in the 70s. What we're aiming for is a drug that can be rolled out at scale. And for that to be a reality, you need to come up with something that is controlled and predictable. Now, if you look at magic mushrooms, for example, the psychoactive component in that is psilocybin, there will be a vast variance between how much of that psychoactive substance is present in mushroom to mushroom, for example. And so I wouldn't feel comfortable in distributing that, knowing that there is this variance and therefore it's very difficult to control the level of the psychoactive component in each different mushroom. But if you are synthesizing the synthetic version of that, you can control exactly how much psychoactive substance is present in each tablet that's taken and thereby create something that that ticks those boxes to the regulator that is safe for people to use, that is controlled, and that, you know, is predictable. And that's what a company like Compass Pathways is trying to do, is creating a synthetic form of psilocybin with a much shorter duration of action so that people aren't, aren't necessarily going on such long trips and it becomes a much more practical medicine for people to take. And I think the regulator understands that and in fact, if you look at the FDA and the EMA and their responses and the way they are helping to expedite some of these clinical trials, I think what we're seeing is, is a largely supportive regulator. And if you look at the consumer, I think that Michael Pollan has done a huge amount to educate the consumer and change the perspective of psychedelic medicines. And I think really uh, another thing that has been incredibly helpful is that actually the existing treatments work very poorly. And so people are crying out for an alternative medicine to help them and their loved ones. And when people are taking a psychedelic-assisted therapy, you know, they're not wearing tie-dye t-shirts and running around in fields. And you know, they're taking this in a clinical setting with a trained therapist in a very controlled environment. And therefore, it really does feel much more like a medical, clinical experience than, I suppose, what the counterculture image of it might be. And so I do think a huge amount has been done to break the stigma. And I think, you know, really the results speak for themselves. It's not just the really promising, really the outstanding promise of the clinical results. It's that also the people who have gone through this say that it's changed their lives and it's been one of the most meaningful experiences in their lives. And reading the anecdotal evidence from people who have taken these drugs shows that 
really the potential is so great that people talking about it and their experiences is doing far more to break the stigma, I think, than anything else. Thanks for sharing that. The piece you called out around making the drug scalable, necessitating a consistent product that has relatively predictable results on patients, I think is really important. Given people may have different reactions to drugs, how do drug companies focus on psychedelics think about making the experience or effect predictable? I know, you know one component might be the amount of the active ingredient and also having as much control over the set and setting or the environment and the therapist who's administering it. But even with those constraints, do you notice that there's just inevitably going to be some inconsistent ways that people are going to react? And how does that impact the ability for psychedelic medicine to be a predictable form of medication? Look, everyone will go through their own psychedelic experience and they will vary from person to person. And therefore, we are working within the realm of something that has to be tailored. And that is at the forefront of a lot of companies' minds. There are two components here. If we're talking about psychedelic assisted therapy, it's what do we give to the patient in order to induce the psychedelic state that is going to lead to a breakthrough for them over the course of their therapy. And that's bearing in mind that if you look at a a psychedelic assisted therapy, it might consist, for example, of six sessions, only two of which the patient is in a psychedelic state. And the other four sessions would be unpacking what took place over that trip, going through a sort of integration experience afterwards so that people can walk out of the clinic safely, etc. And so I think bearing in mind that there are two components there, it's the drug development side, i.e. making that as efficacious and safe as possible and predictable as possible. And then the other part is making sure that there are proper protocols in place for the therapy that's going to take place around that and proper guidelines for it. And, you know, really psychedelic assist therapy is one part of what the psychedelics industry is looking at, but there are companies out there that are developing drugs that take inspiration from psychedelics that don't operate in the mental health space. And for those sorts of indications that they're treating, for example, cluster headaches and her headaches, pain management, other CNS disorders, you might not even need to put the patient into a psychedelic state. There may be anti-inflammatory benefits that are being exploited there. And so it's not just the mental health story or the psychedelic assisted therapy story. It's a much wider story of how we've got a category of plants and drugs that can be developed that can expand the pharmaceutical toolkit to better treat patients where we currently have limited treatment options. I hadn't learned about the application of psychedelic-based medications in applications outside of mental health. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you see psychedelic medicine ultimately being a potential D to C model where patients can actually potentially purchase it with the prescription and administer it themselves? Or given the sensitive nature of the drug and the importance also of the environment and the setting in which the drug is administered, that you see it always sort of being in 
a somewhat administered setting and the implications on that for scaling? So liberalization is expanding here. And we've got over 44 psychedelic compounds already in approval pipelines. And then they're tackling indications such as depression, of course, but there are also others, substance abuse, behavioral disorders, pain management, as I mentioned, neurodegenerative diseases and CNS disorders. And I think for those drugs that don't require a psychedelic state, the treatment to be effective, I can see no reason why it couldn't be a prescription that's taken over the counter. So for example, if we were to take a portfolio company like Bright Minds, for example, they're developing uh, a drug that originates from psilocybin that's going to be a cure for cluster headaches. And cluster headaches are incredibly painful headaches that affect one in a thousand people. And they are so painful, they're nicknamed suicide headaches and really can create a lot of mental anguish. But so far, there's really nothing out there that can treat these types of headache. And Bright Minds are using psilocybin as a basis for creating a cure for that. And it won't carry a psychedelic trip. And I see no reason why that couldn't be taken in the same way as a paracetamol for a headache. That makes a lot of sense. I think part of it is also at this point waiting for the drug trials to come through because there's a resurgence in scientific examination of efficacy for some of these drugs. That There's a lot of different possibilities of how adaptations of the drugs and modifications may expand the use cases for psychedelics. We look at it very much from a life sciences biotech perspective, which is we're not looking at the realms of what can we create from psychedelics. We're looking at what are illnesses that are out there that are not currently treated very well. And is there something about the way that illness works that we can use the science of psychedelics to treat? And so when we are looking at companies to invest in our preference is to look at companies that are taking the approach of, of trying to problem solve here. So we know this illness exists. We know that we have a good target product profile from a psychedelic that can be created. And that's the route that they take. It's a great segue into the next piece of the interview where I want to really understand Neokuma Ventures and what the overall focus as well as origin and genesis came from. So what motivated you and your co-founder to start Neokuma Ventures? So my partner is Sean McClintock. I love working with Sean. And I suppose what motivated us to start Neokuma Ventures is I mentioned for myself, but also for Sean, is that we had seen firsthand the great potential that psychedelics had to treat people because what it was trying to do is actually target the root cause of people's traumas, addictions and problems. So what we wanted to do was find a way of investing as individuals that was informed. And we both had connections within the industry and had made individual investments. And what we had found, particularly on the drug discovery side, is that it was very difficult to diligence these companies unless you had the ability to tear the science apart, tear the patents apart, and really get to the root of what these companies were trying to achieve and speak the scientific language. So what we did for ourselves was assemble a team of scientific advisors really to help us work through the patents. And we had some early successes from 
the investments that we had made. And, you know, we had compiled this little team around us. And then other people who were interested in the sector had come along and asked us, you know, what do you think about this company or that company? And uh, it really started from us explaining the reasons why we hadn't invested in a particular company to a very prolific investor who told us that we should start a fund because he knew people who would be interested in investing because we were doing this very targeted diligence for that. And and what we have actually now at the end of the day is a really interested um, and incredibly engaged investor pool from all walks of life and people who have really been touched by psychedelic healthcare either for themselves or for other people and really want to move the standard of patient care forwards and invest in the leading companies that can do that. And that for us was what motivated us to start is that we had found investors who were really keen to invest from the right perspective and shared our investment thesis. I really like what you say about the priority and the premium you put on research budgets and the science behind some of these emerging companies. One part that you highlighted was because the industry relies so much on knowing the science and being able to speak that language, I would imagine the barriers for the layperson, whether they're an institutional investor or a retail investor is high because not only is it a emerging industry itself, but also a lot of people likely don't have that background. And so having the expertise that Neokuma Ventures brings with your panel of scientific advisors makes a lot of sense. I I know you mentioned the investment thesis. I'm curious at what stage of maturity of companies do you target with your investments? So we invest from pre-seed seed to series A. And we have followed on to later stages with some of the marquee companies in the space. And we do that where it makes sense to do that because of future NASDAQ listings. But on the whole, our focus is on early stage investing where we can add value. And if we see anything interesting that comes along at a later stage, we'll diligence it and then offer it up to our investors as a separate opportunity that we can set up an SPV to run. And so far, we've run four SPVs ranging from about £500,000 to $6 million in size. And what we're trying to do here is take positions in companies at the forefront of clinical research. And we've been able to get in earlier and earlier because of the network that we've created and the access that we've created. What is interesting about psychedelics, but probably not, I suppose, unique to Frontier or, or in sectors that perhaps are operating in a slightly frothy market, is that you have to invest early stage because you may end up being a seed investor in a company and then you set aside follow-on capital to follow through with them. But actually, their next step ends up being that they go to the public markets because they've got a very captive public market opportunity to do so. And that actually happened to us in one of our companies that we invested in as you know, one of the earliest stage investors that ended up going public. And within three months, we'd had an increase in value of 800% because that had been their next step. And I think that really speaks to the excitement around psychedelics that a company can do that. But retail investors can't get into these early stages. And I suppose what we're trying to do is invest in the companies that are going to show long-lasting value and promise. And so for us, it's very important to be looking at teams who've got 
ambitions and a vision beyond going public. And whenever we're looking at investing, no matter what stage of a company we're looking at, we're always taking this from the patient's perspective and how do we advance the standard of patient care forwards. And for us, what that really requires is three things. It's new drugs, better clinics, and then the ability to roll out those drugs in an efficacious way, which includes tools to make that not only enjoyable, but also helpful and safe for the patients so that they can continue that path after they step out of the clinic. And so we looked at our earlier early portfolio through that lens. And what was really clear was that drug discovery was where we needed to deploy our early capital in the early stages so that we could have access to world-leading IP. And then we had to look at other ways to amplify the use of those drugs, perhaps overlaying digital applications or devices to better enhance the experience of people going through that treatment. And those companies together make up this mini ecosystem through which there are benefits to other companies within our portfolio and through which we could really build a robust and cohesive portfolio covering each of our three pillars. And what that's led us to is investing in earlier and earlier stage companies, also because of the network effect where we've got founders that we've worked with recommending us to other founders who are looking for capital. And that's capital that's really value add capital rather than passive capital. And also with our fund, we very much take the approach of being founder led rather than executive led. So we are looking to work with the most interesting and talented companies from the very early stages all the way through. And even though we may not follow through on later rounds of investment, what we will do is go to the market and find very, very good fit investors that can work with them or investors that focus more on later stage pre-IPO investments, for example. The network expanding effect and the multiplier effect you described makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine there's so many different pieces along the value chain and a lot of innovation and a need for capital and connection across all of those dimensions. What we're seeing here is the ability for drug developers, for example, in the past might have had to go through an eight to 10 year program to research the drug, put it through three stages of clinical trial, get it approved and license it out. And what we're seeing here is a landscape where Big Pharma is not investing in researching some of these areas because they know that smaller pharmaceuticals will put in the hard work, the capital and the time to develop drugs. And then there's a possibility for partnership or licensing later down the line. And so with that in mind, founders of drug development companies in in the psychedelic sector know that actually there's a shorter time frame for them than eight years And the horizon could look more like having early stage discussions around partnership at the preclinical stage, getting endorsement from a big pharma to do the work on the understanding that there may well be an exit between phases two and three of the clinical trials, and therefore a much shorter time frame to exit. And with that at the forefront of investors' minds, it doesn't feel like so much of a risky enterprise or a long horizon period because they know that the return will happen a lot sooner and a drug won't have to go through the full clinical trial process. The other thing that we're seeing in psychedelics is companies going public and not choosing to go down the route of licensing or or selling to big pharma. You know, thinking, well, look, we've got the IP here. We've got some promising preclinical results. 
And actually, let's go to the public markets to raise from a favorable market and thereby generate the capital required to put this drug through clinical trial ourselves. And perhaps we end up being the company that distributes it. So I think that's an important lens that's particular to psychedelics that we're seeing, which is the de-risking through shorter time periods. And there's no getting around the fact that it is capital intensive, but we're working with some interesting teams who've come from a drug development background, strong pharmaceutical sector experience, and therefore they know how to go about getting non-dilutive funding for some of their stages of clinical trial, which reduces costs significantly. And so I think that is something that has to be considered when we're looking at the psychedelics market in particular. But it's for us always about applying a scorecard because we like to look at this through that lens of psychedelics, but also looking at this as a market which has a lot of excitement now, but it may not last. And therefore, where do we want to be when the water washes out of the bubble. And for that, you know, we always apply the same scorecard. And we really, this applies to drug development because that's the riskiest pillar within our investment thesis. And that scorecard for us always consists of vision. So what is the drug that's being developed here? And is there actually a problem that they're looking to solve? Secondly, IP. Do they have superior quality IP? And by that, I mean, is the IP around new composition of matter or new chemical entities, i.e. something that they would have the exclusive right to commercialize over a 20-year period because it's innovative? And thirdly, we have to be working with a team of excellent scientists who've got experience of taking drugs to market. And if we don't have those things in place, we don't invest. Because for us, we want to create a portfolio where if you took the word psychedelic out of the description, you would still be left with a fantastic investment that's defensible on its science and robust. There is a huge revenue generating potential in this industry just through the actual delivery of these drugs. And at the moment, it's just ketamine, but we've just had MDMA go through phase three And we're soon going to see that roll out. And there's some really interesting stuff happening with psilocybin. Compass Pathways Phase 3 is looking to be robust. And so we should see those drugs roll out as well. And, you know, then, as I mentioned before, there's huge revenue potential through all of the digital ancillary tools, you know, the picks and shovels that are required around this industry to make it work to make it work around the drugs and the clinics. Psychedelics is a nuanced experience. There's a ton of pre and post care that's required if you're going through psychedelic assisted therapy. And, you know, that can be audiovisual tools, digital tools. And then some of the drugs that we're looking at don't carry a psychedelic experience, but they do require different ways of understanding how, you know, perhaps psilocybin works in the brain or understanding how you can isolate some of those properties and create a drug that's potentially very beneficial to people who don't want to have a psychedelic trip. And there's even been some innovation around whether you can administer drugs that psychedelic in origin, but don't have a psychedelic trip, but actually within the mental health space. And perhaps there's a world where you have very intense psychedelic experiences for the people who have got, you know, the most extreme forms of depression or the most treatment resistant depression. 
and perhaps you have a milder format for people who've got mild to moderate depression who don't require such an intense experience but require something to be taken every day. There's a huge range of different types of investment here from both capital requirements and the amount of time that's taken for them to become revenue generative. Thanks for sharing all of that. Now, I also want to touch a bit about the geographical differences in potential. So understanding that healthcare is very regulatory driven and there are differences across continents and countries and even within countries. Appreciating that Neokuma is based in the UK, how are you thinking about differences in various countries and how you think about even scaling investments globally coming from a UK firm looking out at the rest of the world? We're very much jurisdiction agnostic when it comes to making investments. So we're always guided by the strength of the opportunity and the science and the team rather than geography. And a lot of our early investments actually were into US and Canadian companies. However, we really do think that a lot of the talent and future psychedelics lies within Europe. If you look at the history somewhere like the UK, I think 25% of the most widely taken medicines in the world were discovered and developed in the UK. And Europe as well, particularly the Netherlands, as well as UK, is where a lot of the clinical trials are taking place for psychedelics. So I think the largest psilocybin trial took place in 2019 at Imperial College um, in London. And then we've also got really interesting work happening in Maastricht and Utrecht in the Netherlands. And therefore, our location in the UK means we're very well connected to what's going on in Europe and able to actually visit clinical trial sites and really get to know the people who are running these trials. And a lot of companies that we're seeing working in stealth mode over here. And what's interesting, I think, when you compare Europe to the US and Canada is definitely around valuations and non-dilutive funding available. So as I mentioned earlier, we really like investing in companies that have got access to non-dilutive funding. Um, often that funding comes from governments or from serious organizations. So that's an imprimatur of the team and the idea. But then what we're also seeing is those companies tend to have a much more conservative valuation at this, their pre-seed and seed stages. And that's fantastic for us because we can get in early and really work with the team and get to know them. Um, and help them map out their future trajectory. And then there's this huge arbitrage opportunity um, when it comes to listing, where they can go to the US and Canada and really having made their progress and they're able to command a very punchy valuation. And that's, I suppose, a bit different to what we're seeing in the US and Canada, where companies you know, are looking at the likes of Compass and MindMed and using those valuations to benchmark against and therefore coming up with some really punchy valuations you know, straight off the bat, whereas Europe takes a slightly more conservative angle. It's interesting to hear the differences in approaches, and it's exciting too for us based in the US to think about and learn more about developments in Europe, especially considering some of those companies might be a bit more secretive or a lot of their operations aren't as publicly communicated as of now. You mentioned a lot about working with portfolio companies and how you explore very collaborative models, especially when you're brought on earlier stage with the founders directly. What are some lessons or takeaways that you've 
gotten from working with portfolio companies on how to be the most effective, both from the investor side as a resource for the founders, but also success stories or successful strategies you've experienced from the founder angle, where they've been able to help unlock some of the synergies in your partnership. So we've learned a lot. I think we've learned the most from working with the earliest stage companies. With startups, really, we take a position as a board observer or an investment director, and we'll have calls with them every two weeks where we track their progress and look at some of the challenges they're facing, how to go about those challenges head on with effective solutions, how they might be overcome. And we do a great deal actually within the ecosystem of connecting them with helpful partners and parties within our network, whether it's trusted service providers. The lessons that we've learned about unlocking synergies and balancing preferences and priorities of the founders is that actually before you suggest a partnership you need to really understand what that founder is looking for and what their you know the realization of their dream ultimately looks like does that partnership or that synergy actually have a role to play there and what's the best format of working with another company that that could look like is it a joint venture or is it some sort of licensing arrangement there will always be a synergy that can be unlocked and It's about finding the middle ground between the two companies. Because yes, of course, everyone wants the highest price or everyone wants the more beneficial terms. But ultimately, if it's better for both of those companies to work together and they're going to progress faster and further uh, in partnership than as independent units, then there will be some compromise that can be reached so that they can do that. And I think... On the investor side, you know, balancing the needs and demands of founders and investors, you see that tension really come to the fore, mostly around valuations in various rounds. And we have very upfront discussions with our founders before we invest about what the commitments will look like on subsequent rounds and the timing of those rounds. And I think you learn a lot about how strong that founder is or how commercially savvy they are about the approach they take to that and you know we're not going to invest in a company that has a realistic sort of seed round stage valuation that then just you know shoots for the moon in the next round that needs to be backed up and so I think the more honest and frank you can have conversations before you invest means the more smooth that path will be And we prefer to work with realistic founders who can compromise and appreciate that not every company is going to consistently sort of double its valuation on each round. And you have to have the ability to back those valuations up with the revenue that's coming in or strong potential and real leads. And that's, you know, it's more of an art than a science, I think. And they're thinking longer term about their business. You mentioned a bit about the competition from other VCs. I'm also curious, we touched a bit about Big Pharma and what their approach to psychedelics has been, which has been fairly minimal. Do you preempt any reactions from Big Pharma, for example, investments directly, potentially even acquisitions of earlier stage startups that are 
more successful in building traction, given all of the more recent excitement around psychedelics? And if so, how do you preempt or respond to a potential entrance from Big Pharma? So we always talk about the potential to work with Big Pharma from the get-go. And some of the strongest teams that I've worked with have had conversations with Big Pharma before they start deploying capital. And, you know, obviously under NDA and they have their patents in place and they've submitted their applications. But you'd be surprised at how early those conversations with Big Pharma start. And that's because, you know, ultimately the goal is an acquisition by Big Pharma. And so they are preempting that activity and trying to be on the radar earlier. And and we're also seeing a lot of companies partnering up with National Institutes of Health in the US, which also, you know, helps them command better terms with bigger pharma later down the line. I want to close out the content of the interview by picking your brain on some of the industry projections you have for psychedelics, as well as a future outlook. So one thing we touched on earlier is will psychedelics and the uptake of psychedelics as medication be a trend or will it sort of be a short-term fad that potentially fades and gets usurped by other treatments in the future? What's your take on sort of the longevity and the development of psychedelic medication and where do you see Neokuma throughout that trajectory? So there's a lot to unpack there. I think that psychedelics have always been used as therapies throughout history and will continue to do so irrespective of the regulatory landscape and outlook. I think as a trend, it's definitely something that is growing momentum, pace. And I can't see at this stage with the amount of progress that's been made where you're looking at drugs that are going to phase three, that it's not going to continue. I mean, I think even if you look at the US, for example, the US is investing a huge amount into psychedelics and it's easy to see why. There are so many problems. If you look at, for example, just post-traumatic stress suffered by soldiers that are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who are unable to really contribute to society in the way that they might want to. There's a huge amount of wasted potential opportunity and capital there. And it's easy to see why, for example, there are companies partnering with DARPA, for example, to see how, how those soldiers can be better treated the FDA has issued dramatically accelerated approvals for current COVID-19 vaccines. And as a result of those approvals, they're now under greater pressure to display strength and rigor by increasing the scrutiny on subsequent drug approvals. And I think the fact that they are looking favorably on the psychedelic clinical trials is a huge imprimatur for what's going on. And this is likely to continue through 2021 and the psychiatric illness space has some really important readouts coming out in 2021. So I think it's going to be a make or break year for some. And it, we're also looking at Compass Pathways readout and, you know, the much publicized opioid crisis in the US. So I think it's no surprise that most of the action that we're going to see in sort of general 
healthcare is going to be around focusing on non-opioid treatment options, which uh, psychedelics can be a huge source of, and other types of treatment. And that's more of a general trend, but one that psychedelics lends itself very well to, which is alternative forms of pain management. And so I don't think this really, you could say, is a sort of flash in the pan. I think this is a trend that will persist. And I think rather than being replaced with the likes of, you know, rising telemedicine, I think they're all going to become bundled together in a very, very nuanced form of healthcare. And I think, you know, what we're seeing sort of more widely in, in, in the pharma sector is a different way of assessing value from companies and a different way of treating individuals, you know, rather than applying a one-size-fits-all approach that we've seen so often in healthcare. Um, what we're now seeing is a demand for tailored digital therapeutics where the individual's underlying symptoms are being treated head on. Because of the nature of psychedelics, there's always going to have to be some sort of tailoring that goes with the use of psychedelics. And therefore, we're going to see a much bigger industry growing around that, how we get the drugs into the patient's bodies, how do we tailor the set and setting to be more efficacious or more individualized that particular patient's needs. And, you know, I think it's almost gone so far now um, down the line towards regulation that I think that this is now going to be a new form of healthcare that will be here with us to stay. And so for us at Neocuma, it's about looking at, you know, what are going to be the gaps in service coming up? What are going to be new forms of making the treatment more palatable for the patient? How might that look digitally? You know, it's, it's, it's not just what happens within the clinic. It's afterwards, after you leave, it's tracking how you're feeling. It's um, knowledge, it's data banks, it's how you get the best quality data from the patients that are being treated. And how, how will that look? How will those companies work with insurance providers, for example? How will, how will reimbursement function? Is it going to be a case where insurers are reimbursing the non-psychedelic aspects of the treatment rather than the full treatment itself. And I think there are going to be huge opportunities for people to have very individualized treatment sessions or be able to treat themselves with better digital tools. I think as we saw with cannabis, there's going to be a huge amount of consolidation to come and you're going to see some of the bigger, better capitalized companies like MindMed Compass go into full acquisition mode. We're already seeing that with MindMed, but they're going to be looking at these picks and tools and starting to integrate full service care. So they're going to develop the drug. They'll then create the clinic line where that drug is administered and they'll be investing in all the technologies around that industry. Thanks so much for sharing all of your deep insight and knowledge about the psychedelics industry and the broad sort of healthcare investing and different applications for pain management and mental health care. I'm sure our listeners found that very informative. It's a really exciting space to be in and really excited to see where Neocumo Ventures and the rest of the industry goes from here. Want to open up the aperture. Please share some thoughts on 
things that you've learned throughout your personal and professional career that you think may be helpful for our listeners? Sure. I think professionally, the, the best advice I can give is to take chances. The vast majority of people are happiest playing it safe. But I've always found that it's through taking risks that you can really stand out. And to do that, you know, do your homework, be the best informed person in the room, really face your fears head on and jump. Because it may not, it may not always work, but next time around, it will be easier. And through that, you really build resilience, which I think is a, a really important quality to have, no matter what you turn your hand to in life. And I, I would say towards switching careers, people are often frightened about career switching, especially if they're moving into something that's very different from what they are currently doing. But I think the best thing you can do there is to think about how your current career and your skill set could be beneficial to the field that you want to switch to, and then use that difference and market that. Because I was always afraid, I think, coming from a legal background, that I might not be taken seriously as an investor. But actually, despite my impression that law was very boring, my background turned out to be surprisingly helpful along the way, especially with startups, because a lot of our startups are looking at licensing or franchising or partnerships. And what I had done a huge amount of was structuring those things to be the best commercial outcome and to paper that in the best way. And often thinking about risk from the get-go, because I think startups obviously are beginning their journey, really, really exciting idea. You've just had capital come in. Everyone is thinking in a very positive and optimistic way. And lawyers tend to be looking at the risks and how to manage that. On a personal level, just always try to keep your sense of humor. I think you know, it's probably Winston Churchill who said something along the lines of, when you're going through hell, keep going. And you know, we see that a lot with startups and companies. You hit roadblocks, obstacles along the way. Just keep going. And the same is true for your career path. And if you can make the people around you laugh while you're doing that, then, you know, whether you're successful or not, you'll lighten their spirits and make them feel good. And that's what they'll remember. 